This is the Thrive Podcast with Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And now, Pastor Fred Jeff Smith. Hello and welcome to the 28th edition of the Shiloh uh, Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you are either viewing or listening to this edition of Thrive. And I'm delighted to have here with me today uh, Mr. Carlos Malbrew. Mr. Malbrew is a native of Lake Charles, Louisiana, and a... uh, a fellow Baton Rouge High uh, Magnet School uh, graduate, although about 20 years removed from when I graduated. From, uh, I graduated in 79. What, okay, you 2001. Okay, <laughs> a few more than 20 years. Give or take. Yeah. Give or take. Yeah. But uh, he, he's also a. Do y'all, did, did you all still call yourselves maggots? We were called maggots. Maggots? Uh, not quite. Uh, but we're just, just the bull, bulldogs. Okay. okay. Okay, well, they, they called us maggots. But, maggots, uh, okay. Uh, right. he, he's also a Baton Rouge High uh, graduate. Uh, he's also a graduate of Xavier University. Xavier. And uh, he's living a wonderful life, uh, writing uh, children's books, uh, and living in China. Mr. Malbrew, thank you for taking the time to share with us today. Thank you for having me. Tell me more about your life. Tell me who Carlos Malbrew is and how Carlos Malbrew got to be who he is. Okay, Carlos Malbrew, a country boy from Lake Charles, Louisiana. That's where I was born and raised. Um, I lived in Lake Charles until about the age of six. My dad was always in management, so we moved to Houston for one for I think he had a position with Boeing or something. Okay. And so we we're in Bo- in Houston for several years, and he started managing clothing stores and the like. And then we ended up in Baton Rouge four years later. So most of my life is in Baton Rouge, crawfish, hot weather, and then I got into running in school, uh, starting with Baton Rouge High, okay. track, cross country. That was like my life. That was okay. what I was into. And always as a kid, I was always into stories, storytelling, reading, and then loving reading led to a love of writing mm-hmm. because I'm reading stories. And you know, you're in school, elementary school, journal day, you do one page story, journal, one page this. Then as I'm reading actual like novels, and it's like, well, I want to write a longer story. Mm-hmm. So then I'm start getting in my composition book. Like, ooh, I want to have a chapter into the chapter. You don't know what's gonna happen next. Oh, is it gonna fall on their head? Oh, what's gonna happen? Uh, this book's called The Hardy Boys. I don't know if you ever heard yeah, of those. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Though The Hardy Boys inspired what I originally eventually wrote as the danger kids okay. which i actually wrote it in middle school as a kid and then later as i found out about the new world of publishing how you can make things happen and then i eventually published those stories changed them up from the mind of a 12 year old and put a little bit um on them and so i went from there with the writing part but reading and writing i was always into it i can credit pizza hut a little bit for this so pizza hut had something when i was in elementary school where if you read a book, you got a star and you got a pan pizza per star. And I think you got something else when you got nine or eight stars. Why did nobody ever tell me about Dude. this? Because I love pan pizza. The pan pizzas <laughs> are so good. Pan pizzas taste better than regular pizzas. The yeah. world needs to know this. Yeah. A big size pizza don't taste as good as a pan pizza. I totally agree. So you read a book, you get a pan pizza. I like reading. I like pan pizzas. <laughs> Suddenly reading seemed really, really fun. Yeah. So as I get into that, I'm reading these stories. I'm just naturally competitive as well. So if somebody, these stories are good, why don't I do a little bit, do a little more? Right. And it just grew from there. So I always love storytelling. I would, when I would work with my dad, he, he paints, um, he has his own paint business. When I would work with him, I'd be drafting storylines and movies in my head. I mm-hmm. would daydream storylines of movies and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I was always into it. I just thought it wasn't practical. So I tried to take a practical path towards being a teacher, getting my English degree at um, Xavier and things like that. Okay. Um, and then over time, the first thing that shook me up was Hurricane Katrina. Okay. Hurricane Katrina hit while I was in grad school. Uh, I had just started grad school at UNO. And I think it was the first week of grad school when the hurricane hit. And the ability of that hurricane, because it stopped everything that was going on. My sister was the Miss Dillard at the time. Okay. And so she went from having a portfolio with all her plans. The whole year was mapped out. Well, it wasn't mapped out anymore after that uh, hurricane situation. So that situation shook me up in the sense of instead of only being practical, I wanted to start pursuing the arts. So I went to acting school in New York after the hurricane okay. and I actually later came back here five years later 2012 
then I went to grad school, got my master's in public administration. You've got layers to your life. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 tell me about. You said you started writing in middle school, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I, I remember at Baton Rouge High. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming it was the same way, although you're 30 years removed from me. Uh, uh, when, when, when you wrote composition. Uh, when you took composition classes, mm-hmm. you got two grades. You you got a content grade and a grammar grade. Uh-huh. Did they still do it that way when you were there? Fortunately for me, they did not do it that way. Or I think I think it's better they didn't because my whole story when it comes to English, despite having an English degree, that I always got low marks when it came to grammar. Okay. I made mostly A's in English classes. I mean, I majored in it in college, so right. I was into it. The grammar part, I wasn't as into, but also... When you're writing an essay, a story, whatever you're writing, a 10-page paper, the grammar is getting in the way. I have a thought that I have to express, and now I need to figure out whether it's a semicolon or a full colon, but I need to dump it all out. So I'm always dumping it all out first, then going back to the edit part. So teachers were like that show Zorro, where the guys always, (laughs) they were always swiping stuff all over, but they liked the content. The content kept getting getting me to still make overall, make A's in English. If it was up to the grammar part, I'd have been in more trouble. And then I would have had to focus on the grammar, which then would have limited the creativity. I understand. So, so. Yeah, we, we, uh, we, we, we got a content grade over a grammar grade mm-hmm. to get a, a median score or a, or a middle score. Oh. And I was always pretty good. I, I was always A's and mm-hmm. B's in content. Mm-hmm. And B's and C's and, and grammar. Okay. It got better after a while. Okay, I understand that. Well, your system was going to force me to get even better with it. <laughs> yeah. I had the basics down, but when I'm writing those long paragraph, one sentence paragraphs mm-hmm. and trying to explain something, I always try to make sure I do the point of the paper or the assignment and the grammar was secondary because right. I had the basics of it. So Okay. Yeah. So these creative uh, stories that you wrote and later... Uh, updated and and had published. Uh, how do you carry a story out from its genesis to its conclusion? Uh, how how do you maintain that thought process throughout? Um, I've been fi- I've been figuring it out on the go because even though I had written these stories in elementary and middle school, the Danger Kids, the main the kind of the main like franchise. Even though I wrote that story in middle school. I found out about publishing around 2000, I guess, 15, that you can publish for free about the online ebooks and those type of things. And I was like, oh, I got to get into this because I had thought about going to film school at USC. This mm-hmm. is after grad school mm-hmm. when I was out here working at LSU and HR. And I was like, okay, I need to start with material I already have and then go from there. Mm-hmm. So with the Danger Kids, I already had the stories. It's just they were the stories from the mind of a 12-year-old, mm-hmm. which I think is the cool part. Right. So I just had to make adjustments. From there, I then started doing more or less spiritual self-help books, biblical self-help books that take elements of the Bible and explain them to somebody who's not necessarily into the Bible. And so with that, what I still had for those stories was I already had whatever was already in the Bible, already presented. For example, Solomon's Ecclesiastics, I did a book called King Solomon's Conclusion. And it's basically based on what he, it's based on Ecclesiastics, but it's like a breakdown of it. And it's from the angle of what did he say is good? If he said Mm -hmm. everything was meaningless, then what did he say? And so it's kind of like a fulfillment purpose type of book off of what he brought in Ecclesiastics because for me when I first read it as a kid this was a shocking book to me Mm -hmm. because I was very much in the Proverbs but this Ecclesiastics thing seemed like he was he was taking turning away from everything in Proverbs and saying it's all meaningless Mm -hmm. so now later I'm like well he said it was all meaningless but then he said what had some meaning here and there so Mm -hmm. I tried to pull from that and break it down into this ebook so so the process of the writing is evolving because different topics have different things. The Danger Kids I already had a template. King Solomon's uh, uh, conclusion is off of directly off of the Bible, so I have something to go off of creating. And then there's a couple times I created my own stories, like a, a play, Ordinary People, about relationships. But I based the play on the people that I was going to have in it. So because I knew who I wanted to play the characters, that also helped me shape that story. Okay. So it's really just it's di- very different depending on the story, depending on what I'm writing. So your publishing uh, started off with ebooks. 
Yes. Okay. And I heard you say that you can do ebooks for free. Right. Okay. Tell me more about that. Okay. So Amazon and and Kindle have a deal together. Amazon and Kindle they they embed together. So they have a thing called KDP.com, and they can set you up to publish for free. Now, if you do it totally for free, it won't be good. But <laughs> explain that because you need a real cover, you need a book cover. Okay. You need some other eyes on it to edit it. You need to do certain things that if you only just type on Microsoft Word, then that might not and do their generic covers that might not be good enough. But you can do it. Okay. So for me, the fact that you could even do it for free means I can at least get in the game because I didn't have the resources to just be sending someone money. And you money. preferred. Uh, ebooks as opposed to traditional books, novels? What it was for me, it wasn't that I preferred it. It was that I found a path that would let me become a published author. Okay. And then if I can at least start, I can go from there because I'm carrying this thing for 20 plus years of wanting to be a published author. Right. And then always knowing that one day I'm going to do it, I'm supposed to do it, and then I've never done it. And now there's something that you can get to the finish line. So if I can do one thing, I can grow it. But if I keep not having done it at all and I just have a composition book with notes on it and thoughts on it, mm-hmm. that's not enough. So I wouldn't say that I ever preferred it, but this became the opportunity. And then through the ebooks, they have another deal with CreateSpace that you could make them paperbacks that way. And now you can make your ebooks paperbacks on the same site. Now they've made it even more seamless. This technology thing when this is podcast really crazy. Is over, you and I are going to have a different conversation. <laughs> this, so some of my friends have become authors of off of this. Once I yeah. told them about it, and they were like, "Oh," and I'm like, "Is they have made it so you can really just do this?" Let me share with you a prejudice of mine, okay. and, and 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 you can perhaps dispel my prejudice. Mm-hmm. That self-published books don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. That you know, people spend a lot of money mm-hmm. uh, publishing books. Mm-hmm. We, you have these groups out here who say we'll help you become an author. Blah blah mm-hmm. blah. You have to send them so much money, mm-hmm. four thousand, five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. They give you two hundred copies of your book, and then you're responsible for out of the trunk of your car selling the books that that, that you have written. That's the that's the picture that's what that held I me back. Have. That's what held me back okay. from doing it because so I didn't t- have money to spend to have 500 copies of books sitting. So now that you can print on demand, right? Create Space lets you have it ready for print, but not where you have to order it and you have to order 500 copies and now hope people buy it or just give it away. But you, don't you need a publisher to help promote the book that you have written, or or do you have to be your own? Yes, if you wanna if you want to be big time or immediately be making money you need some way for it to be known that you even it have it's not books. even about making money it's about making sure somebody else gets the book I pastor a church uh-huh. I don't have time to hawk a book at the same time that I, I'm pastoring a church there are things that I would like to publish mm-hmm. uh, uh, in fact I've, I've been chastised by several people that I don't publish uh, enough uh, uh, but uh-huh. but that's a time-consuming process mm-hmm. if you devote yourself completely to it. It's, it's not a, a part-time venture. It's, right, it's a and when you're being venture. the whole business yourself, of course, that's a lot. But when you have once, if you can at least get it, get the project done, the system is in place where you you have a team. I'm sure you have different people. You know, obviously, as, as a pastor, you have people. So the fact that you can print it on demand, that mm-hmm. is there for when you need it, and that ebook wise is digital. So all you gotta do is tell people where they can they can get it right off of Amazon. The same Amazon people buy their groceries and clothes. Right. Right. Your own my own books are on regular Amazon.com. Okay. If you even type in my name, then you automatically see the books. And you know the ebooks are like two ninety nine, depending on whatever price I put on there. Um, but the ebooks are are even more inexpensive and then with the ebooks are the paperbacks and I eventually did audiobooks because you, you can do audiobooks for free and have, some, have somebody narrate with your with own you. voice oh, you, you can do you, it yourself okay. or you can choose somebody time wise it's easier for me to choose somebody and then you can either pay them or you just agree that they get half of the royalty oh, and then you get the audiobooks for free as well for audible.com where Kevin Hart and all these people yeah. is the same website and you can get yours done 
for free. Once again, if you have money, you can pay a better person, but you can do it for free. And you can, I just went ahead and made the deals with the people that narrated that they get half mm-hmm. or whatever sales so that it could get done. My thing is that you have to do something first before you can do more. Right. So once I found ways I could at least do stuff, then I'm like, well, I must do stuff. And then, I mean, it even led to me, I, I left my job at LSU so I could invest enough into this writing thing that I wouldn't be able to go back to purposely put myself in a situation where I'd have to keep doing it. So, but yeah, they, they make it now that you can do it. And so because you can at least do it, you can definitely grow it. And you don't have the pressure of you had to also order a thousand copies. No, you can create it and it's already ready for whenever the order is, or it's just sitting there and the person can go directly to Amazon, create space, and you can still order them whenever you want to and have your books ready if you want to send them by hand. They're letting you do it however you, whatever is going to work best for you. They're making it totally possible. Typically, and, and you might not know the answer to this, you're, you're not a representative of Amazon, but I'm just curious. Typically, if, if I wanted to, to, to follow the path that you just laid out, and I wanted to print 500 copies mm-hmm. of a 100-page book. Mm-hmm. What would that cost? So what they do, what Amazon was doing through CreateSpace that they're partnering with, they let you get to make the copies off of just how much it costs them basically to make the book. So let's say one of my books, The Danger Kids, that might have been 60 pages, but it's like a small size book. Is like two ninety nine or three ninety nine per copy. If I buy the copies myself, but if somebody else buy it, I have it at like eight ninety nine, nine ninety nine to get something off of it. So they have it where you can get it at the bare bones amount, and then you can print however much you want as you need, rather than the once again having to. So how? Okay. So it would depend on you know the number of pages, the math, but they let you do it at the bare bones um, part when it's you directly. That's how they work with you. Yeah. And when are you headed back to China? Uh, <laughs> depends on all this little visa paperwork type of stuff. So uh, I'm supposed to be back by September. Okay, well, that, that gives me some time. Then mm-hmm. you and I are gonna have a conversation about about this. So you, you, in addition to writing, mm-hmm. you you had a desire to do film work, uh, mm-hmm. to yeah. to create your own films. Yeah. Tell me the difference between writing for uh, for for someone like me to read and doing screenwriting. Well, the number one thing when it comes to film, to me, the the best illustration is what Quentin Tarantino said. I just found it just, it just made so much sense to me in its own crazy way. They told him something about why is his film so violent. And he, I'm not having to answer exactly how he said it, but he basically said, because film is visual. And it was just the simplest answer. I mean, it doesn't mean everybody wants to see a violent movie, but it's like the biggest thing about film is that it's visual. It's called a motion picture. The story is told visual. That's the thing that even writers sometimes don't understand until they're in the actual business of it. Mm-hmm. Film is visual. And when you understand that, that is the difference. The story must be told through the eyes. Everything else is just the other parts. Film is visual. So when people write you know, scripts, it, the screenplays, they make you write the screenplay so that the people can shoot the movie. You don't write, oh, this is a movie. You, for the screenplay purposes, the screenplay is setting, day, coffee shop, blah, 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 camera zooms in on this. The story is told by the visuals. So that's the, the big, it's a huge difference. It Whereas is. books tell you what's going on in the mind of your characters. Right. And books don't always translate well in the movies because books can just give you certain information. And then you also get to visualize for yourself with a book. Whereas film gives you the visual and now people can critique it and not like the visual. Not whereas with the book, I can we can be reading the same good material, but your how you saw it in your eye can be different than how I saw it in my eye. Mm-hmm. So when it becomes a movie, I might like it because that might have went with what my eye envisioned, but it might not have went with what your eye envisioned, so it threw off how you were looking at the book. I see. Yeah. I see. How did you end up in China? Um, I needed to get myself a job that was going to allow me to make enough money to live so that I could pursue continuing to write. Because in order to really succeed in it, you have to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. You can't really bet on your one book unless you're already a name. If you're already a name, you can sometimes say, oh, I know what's going to happen. When you're just a person doing it, the number one thing, because I also researched it and everything, is that real authors keep writing. 
real anybody in a real profession or that's a real professional at anything mm -hmm. they don't just only say if you're a piano player I have one song if you're a singer I have one song <laughs> yeah. you're a pastor I have one sermon and right. this has to put me over you keep doing what you're doing or you're not really a professional at it and at the beginning I can't already be a professional but I already know how much writing and creativity and storytelling is connected in my whole life since I was a baby so I know that what I have to do is keep going no matter what. Mm -hmm. China gives me, gave me and gives me an option to definitively be able to keep going. The cultural differences uh, between <laughs> China and America, I, I can imagine, are stark, and you could probably spend the rest of our time talking <laughs> about that. Uh, I, I guess the thing that I want to ask is, as an African-American mm -hmm. in China, uh, how are you perceived, how are you received by those who are there? Um, so China, actually, they have a, a lot of racism in a different way than here, because in a specific way, certain schools won't hire me, period, for having black skin. What what they want for English as a second language teachers is they want people who speak English and their native tongue. They very much like if you're an American or if you're from like England but they also really like the white face because it's associated more with um, success. And it's and some of them don't even think that black people are in America or in England. They think that you're just in Africa because China also restricts information. And so because with the restrictiveness, they have a form of sometimes racism that's ignorant. And also, the, some of the things that they do, you can't culturally do in America. So if a job wants to not hire you because you're black, they have to find another way. They can say no dark. They can the recruiter can just tell you this school no dark skin. They can say Caucasian only. We can't say Caucasian only. We have to if we want Caucasian only, find a way around Couch it. it. Yeah. They can do it directly. Okay. So it's very much different. Also though, whoever they come in contact with leaves a bigger impression on them because they only have what they heard, what they're being told, or what they know, which can sometimes be very limited. What this does as an opportunity is, if they get a positive experience with you, that is their experience, and then they have more knowledge than anyone else who's saying something about a black person or a foreigner that never even met one. They met one. They've associated. We've played basketball. We've ate together. We've drank together. We've spent time. They've given me car rides, blah, blah, blah. So they have something, and now they have more weight from their personal experience than whatever they might see or hear. And depending on what area of China you're in, the people are very nice, and they're open to you. You can rock their world, and it's okay. Like, if it, you rock their world in a positive way, they're, they're good with that. That's cool. So they just, they have their own thing with the, with the dark skin because it's associated with manual labor. So they have different things like that. Some of the similar things that we have here with our own race and with the country as a whole, but they have it more from a less information standpoint. So it allows you to be the difference. You can be the difference. And that's the opportunity part of it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> In addition to the cultural differences, there are religious differences, clearly. Yes. Um, are you allowed to practice your faith? Uh, you are there? allowed to practice your faith. You are not supposed to influence the, the national citizens there. That's the main thing that you're not supposed to do to the point of, like, illegal level. You can't be trying to promote and sway them. Now, ironically, when I first got my passport last year, the lady I was um, in was some office downtown getting some stuff together for the passport. She was like, she has friends out there doing missionary work. And I was like, what? Because the main thing I was told was this before I even came, everybody warning me, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. So some people got to do what they got to do. They got to do either what the Lord called them to do. But also, there's a lot of flexibility. So China will have a lot of rules about things, but then there'll be gray areas and flexibility and because it's such a big country, different cities in different regions can do something dramatically different. And also the government can change things fast. So they'll make a harsh rule about something and they'll also remove the harshness of a rule. And they'll do this very fast because they don't have to deal with kickback and pushback. They just tell you something, then they tell you we are doing this or we're not doing this, and then you just go from there. But overall, you can practice whatever your religion is, but you're not supposed to be trying to influence them um, 
that's the main thing that you're not supposed to be doing. Do you have friends, colleagues, associates there who are also Christian, and are you allowed to congregate? Or, yes. or do you have to practice your religion in private? You are allowed to congregate, but once again, if you're congregating, is about it does so in a way that the local government feels is about to influence them, then there can be an issue. So my boss had a certain church, and then all of a sudden the church was moved location-wise they, they had the clearances or whatever, but then they decided they can't have church there anymore. So her church had to go somewhere so far away that I think she couldn't necessarily attend or not as often. Like, it just changed everything because mm -hmm. of of how our job setup is and everything like that. So if they, so sometimes it's like, depends on how they feel. Oh, so you're congregating? Yes, you can meet. We can meet and have our own Bible study, our own church. But then they might say, oh, you're meeting at this. They might just start to feel a little way about it if you get more and more members or mm -hmm. if blah, blah, blah. And they're like, mm, we don't know if we need to hear your gospel hymns at a certain time of night. You're going to end up still drawing them in. Then they might make you change locations or say you can't do it here. So, so they allow you to be big but not too big. They allow you to say, I am Christian. They don't really need, want you to do much more than that. Okay. But if you and another Christian want to say, we are Christian, and together we talk about God, they're like, still okay. okay. You and two more people, okay. But if it looks like you and now four people is becoming six and becoming eight, they might have to say, hey, keep it to yourself. Don't, it's, you can't be broadcasting it. You're not supposed to be swaying their people. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that that the confining aspect of of the culture that you're that that you have entered into is not limited to religion it, it probably covers other things you said that their access to information is limited do they limit your access to information as far as internet and and things of that sort yes so they have notoriously one of the slower internets in the world mainly by design, and they have what's called the Great Firewall. The Great Firewall is to keep out social media, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, and Google, but Google is also part of a more business-slash-political situation that happened between China and Google that they're actually repairing. So Google is going to come back, but they're going to agree to not have certain things on Google when they come back. So what's happening now is a lot of companies that in the past didn't want to work with China and said, oh, they do this, they do that, communist, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly now they're like, oh, we'll, we'll, we're okay with this. This is their rules. We're okay with it because now there's this. Sure. They, they rose on the national ranks. So like Apple, for example, has agreed to not allow this thing called a VPN. If you have a VPN, you can still get on Facebook, Instagram, and everything while you're there. So that's what we do. Well... Apple agreed that the iPhone X won't even, the VPN, you can't put it on the iPhone X. So Apple, despite their love of freedom and everything, in this situation, no, that's their rules, and we're going to get our phones to this billion of people. So that type of and, thing. And, and from their standpoint, from Apple's standpoint, it's, it's a money venture. They're, right. We'll, we'll comply with your request because it right. opens up the opportunity for us to sell a million more. Right. And also, when it comes to China, you can... You can know more for a fact what's going to happen with your business on the high level. When you and the government make a deal there, it doesn't go wrong as easily as it would if you make a deal with America or somewhere else where the people, where there's so much variance among what the people going to do. Mm -hmm. You can know we about to put these phones, we're going to sell this amount, and you're going to sell that amount because the way the system's set up, it doesn't have as much variance among the people as what they will do. And shockingly, they didn't buy iPhones when you just knew they would. No, they're going to buy them. The government knows whether they are or aren't. You know, whereas in America, one thing happens, one person posts on social media and everybody throws down their iPhone X's. That's also why they don't do the social media thing. So it lets their government run way more efficiently because you don't have kickback. When they want to build something, because they're they're hosting the next Olympics, I believe. When they want to do certain things, they don't have to have the newspapers oppose it. They don't have to have the people stand up and, and rally against it. So it lets you do things very efficiently. Mm -hmm. And business-wise business, business -wise and political-wise, you can make certain deals and you can actually come through because your people aren't about to overturn your decisions and mm -hmm. get on social media or something and then cast doubt over it, they're just going to make the deal and then actually do it.
So protest is not allowed. Yeah, you don't. That's not a thing. <laughs> right. So, okay. like, you know, certain professors, apparently recently some professor did a little protest um, of what's going on with the president. And, um, yeah, he's brave because you're not, that's not a thing that you really do. And then even if you do it, you have to make sure you do it at the right time and things of that nature. Overall, you don't oppose what they're trying to do. And then in a certain sense... In a certain sense, you live freer. You could potentially live freer in China if you aren't worried about trying to get at what the government is doing or not doing. They have this way of leaving you alone as well. But when they do do something, you need to just, if you saw a store here and now it's not there, well, now it's not there. Just get on with your life. And then in some ways, you're more free if you accept the, the premise, kind of. Interesting. Interesting. And, and, and you've been there for a year, and you plan on going yes. back. Mm-hmm. How, how, wh- what's your plan for how long you think you might be in China? Well, year two depends on being able to achieve a certain level of financial success and being able to still do my my art, where the writing, performances. I just did a performance of one of my books. So the Ordinary People book, that's a play that I wanted to do in New York, I ended up doing in China right before I left uh, left the city of Chungchun. So, if those opportunities continue and I can continue to do them and not have either kickback or things in the way, then that lets me stay there longer. So I'm I would like to at least get two more years out of there, but it could easily go longer than that. Um, so my thoughts are, if not China, then I'll be somewhere else, another country, and continue with a kind of add an international flavor to myself and to what I do with the writing, with uh, doing performances and things of that nature. So the Chinese government supports the arts? Yes. So so what they do, once again, is different provinces, they, have, they can have com- almost drastically different rules in different areas. Mm-hmm. So they have what you call the tier one locations like Shanghai, Beijing, and then they have a place called Shenzhen where Shenzhen is designated for people to do entrepreneurial type things. So a lot of rules are more relaxed because they specifically want people to find ways to generate money and businesses. And they have like young people and young foreigners there doing different things without as much restrictions. The tier one location I was I was in the process of going to, Suzhou, that they consider the Venice of China, is right near Shanghai. This place has some of the most restrictions when it comes to visas, paperwork, and things of that nature. So different areas, the government has different uses for different areas. They even recently experimented with letting some city have Facebook and Twitter. They either let them or they're about to let them in that specific area. So they're trying to continue to build themselves on the world stage. So they try out certain things. So sometimes when they say something's banned, they'll unban it. Or they'll they'll emphasize something, then they might not emphasize it. But also when you go to different locations, it can be very much different um, as far as some of the rules. So when you produced Ordinary People, uh, was this an American story produced in China, or was it a Chinese story? This was an American story produced while I was um, at the end of my time in New York. Before I came back to come here for graduate school at LSU, I wanted to try to get this play done. Mm-hmm. It, was, it wasn't even a book then. It was just a play that I wrote with specific people in mind that would play these certain characters, mm-hmm. and I knew how it could go because we were friends and we'd also graduated acting school together. So I wrote it in certain ways so that knowing how they could play the characters and the type of chemistry they would have, but we didn't end up getting it done before I left. So now, instead of it being what it was, like now, like the person that played my wife in the play, she's from the Ukraine. The person that played my friend from South Africa's fiance, she's from the Ukraine. We had somebody from, I think, Iran who did like a little performance in the play. Uh, someone from Kenya. Um, I had a Chinese person helping us with the lights and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it ended up having international flavor, but that's okay. just how that's how it happened, how it came together. Okay. And I wasn't even looking to do it before leaving, but these girls had read the play. Um, one time when they were at my house for an event, 
they had started getting interest in the play. So then they later were like, what about this performance stuff you directed? Are we going to do it? And I'm like, well, I'm kind of about to leave. And they're like, well, we can do it. We can make it happen. And I was like, well, I'm here in China for these type of things, even though this isn't the time. But I can't be running from things that I'm, this is how I got here doing mm -hmm. this type of stuff, mm -hmm. how I'll end up leaving my HR job at LSU. So let's see if we can do this in this short amount of time. And they, they pulled through. We did the production. We made it happen. So. Excellent. Outstanding. Um, the spiritual aspect of, of, of your life and the spiritual aspect of your stories uh, uh, in that you are exposed to, in, in, a, in a pragmatic and practical way, uh, world religions, perhaps mm -hmm. on a scale different from people who simply study it in a classroom or read mm -hmm. books about it. Uh, does it enhance your own personal faith walk or, or the fact that you're exposed to different theological, spiritual points of view? Um, when it comes to that, to a certain degree, there hasn't been too many of those discussions there as opposed to when I was in New York, as opposed to when I was in college, also because I used to engage in these discussions all the time. Then over time, I learned to not engage as much but just stay ready so when the time comes I got the little sword of truth ready so when I need to flash it instead of just being ready to have it out just let situations play out I think New York taught me that but the main thing for me is that Xavier is what made me develop my faith to a certain point that I know kind of exactly where I stand about the whole thing of, is it literal? Is it not literal? What about this? Well, men wrote it. Oh, does it do this or that? Because Xavier, the theology classes, I took three theology classes. I was unaware of what theology really was. I thought that theology was more Christian and more, I didn't know theology was as, I guess, potentially secular as it is. I don't even know how to describe it, but it wasn't what I thought. But my friends told me, they said, when you go to this th theology class, you think you know this and that, they're going to blow your mind. They're going to get you. And I'm like, okay, theology is the study of God, man. All right. And they're like, they're going to handle you. And so I'm in Xavier, and these, they're like priests and stuff saying why they don't take the Bible literally. They're saying why this didn't happen this way. And it was like, and then some of the books that we were reading was like, well, if God is just, why this? Well, and why that? Well, and what about women's liberation theology? What about the blah, blah, blah theology? And I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> so as, as it was like, breaking me up or doing whatever it was doing to me when when it was all said and done to me everything in those classes for me validated my faith more and mm -hmm. proved why it was all still true the way I believe it to be true I had to it helped me mature some of the views in a certain sense but overall the Bible came out more real than ever by the time I was done with that and since then other different I kind of got those answers I used to wonder as a kid well how do we know ours is right if there's 2,000 religions and what about this and all these religions had a person like a Jesus and what about this blah 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 and of course people at churches is growing up and everything and parents are like ah nice all these questions huh let's just finish dinner like, right. like okay right. thank you for those questions Oh, oh, okay. Good because question. Really yeah, and it's like, man. So those classes gave me those answers. Now that I have those answers, at least for myself, I know why I know. I know why I know that it's the right one, right. even compared to the other. I I have a certain full certainty. So what happened was. Some of the theology teachers did this thing that I guess also because I took philosophy classes, they did this illogical thing. First of all, I didn't know that priests were going to do stuff to, like, diminish the Bible, so that was strange to me. Our fathers would do stuff to diminish it, so that I had to get over that first. But they would do something like they would explain why the Adam and Eve story can't be true, mm -hmm. how it was written. So the teacher tells the class it can't be true because our kid says, a kid raised their hand, a student, and says, yeah, so how come if Adam's rib was taken out, to give to Eve, then why would we all still, why would men still have the same amount of ribs? Why wouldn't they be missing that one rib? Then the teacher, the professor is going to agree with her and say, yeah, and that's what I'm saying. You know, it's not literal, blah, blah, blah. And so for me, I couldn't prove that it is true, but I could start proving that the reasons they're saying is not true don't have to be true. So I was like, okay, if you get your arm cut off, your kid will still have two arms. 
So that's not the reason it's not true because he gave her a rib and now men still have that rib there. That doesn't prove it. Then somebody's like, well, also they asking the teacher, if God, why did God ask Adam and Eve where they were? If he's supposed to be God, know where they were. And the teacher's like, yeah, that's why it's not literal. Then I'm like, okay, has your parent ever knew that you dropped, broke something and then asked you if you broke it? And it's like, so that doesn't prove it's not true either. Right. So those type of things was actually making my faith stronger. And I saw the effect in the class where, because it was like the teachers were doing stuff where they about to have the class just toss their Bibles in the trash. Like they about to just toss them. And then I'm like standing up for it. And, but the teachers are accepting it because the professors want you if to engage with them and the students are getting it too. And so it was like, okay, I see what's going on. I see that I can talk to these professors who have their, you know, PhDs in this and still have logic and ration, right. rationale as we go back and forth. Right. And they appreciated it. It wasn't really much of a problem. So so those type of situations. What they wanted, I would suppose, uh, you know, I, I have a seminary education, and, and mine was on a graduate level, not an undergraduate level, and uh, we ran into some of the same problems at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary where uh, people came to the seminary with what I call and I say it in, in a somewhat demeaning fashion, a Sunday school theology. And that's what they wanted the professors to affirm, mm -hmm. their Sunday school theology. Now, I've been going to Sunday school all my life, so anybody who's listening or watching and says right, not against he, he, he's opposed to Sunday school, no, I'm not opposed to Sunday school. But there is a deeper level of thinking than just what you get uh, in Sunday school. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to make your life's work uh, Christian education, or if you're going to make your life's work pastoral ministry, if you're going to make your life's work uh, missionary work in different parts of the country, or of the world, I should say, then you have to be able to think more critically than just what you get through a 45-minute Sunday school lesson. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when, when these people had their Sunday school theology attacked, Mm -hmm. Their natural response was to hit back. Oh, you're you're, you're a heretic. You you don't belong here. Right. No, I I took it as basic training. They yeah. they're breaking you down in order to build you back yeah. up. Mm -hmm. They're trying to to force you to to disassociate yourself with the limited way in which you had been thinking uh -huh. in order to get you to think on a deeper, more critical mm -hmm. level. Not necessarily to change your point of view, mm -hmm. but to help you to have a better understanding of why you have the point of view mm -hmm. that you have. And, and it sounds like that's the experience And that's that what was had. good because they appreciated the back and forth and it was never really a big deal. Uh, there was only one time it was actually a problem, but um, yeah, they were trying to make people have more context but they were leaning towards, it was like they almost, it was like they're a little, I just thought that they would still have more of the faith. They were like, it was really swaying. But I think what also happens is, I think just religion has burned out so many people, even those in the ministries, that you try to have people do what you say, not only have this Sunday school thinking that just makes people religious robots and mm -hmm. try to make people look at reality because some of the things that they had us looking at from these liberation theologists and stuff they were giving you real information and then asking you now what about that yeah. and then pointing right back at you like what you gonna say or what will God say what about that yeah. and you're like oh well well one uh, of the things I, that, you, that, 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 that people have to come to grips with particularly African Americans because while we are African-American, our training is decidedly European uh -huh. uh, because African-Americans don't write, <laughs> not, not, not in large uh -huh. quantities. So our theological uh, 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 writing, reading, the, the, the studies that we get are primarily European, uh -huh. not, not African. Uh, and when you are forced to encounter a liberation theology, uh, that is decidedly third world, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be African or uh, sub-Saharan mm -hmm. or uh, Latin American, uh, the, the, the theology of the oppressed as opposed to the theology of the oppressor. It is an incredibly different point of view. And when you look at Jesus through the spectrum of being the oppressed mm -hmm. and that he says, I have come to liberate the oppressed, mm -hmm. 
that's very different than 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 the than, than the European point of view mm-hmm. of the oppressor. Mm-hmm. And for some people, it's a shock that they never get past. Mm-hmm. So so I, I I can appreciate the fact that uh, liberation theology uh, causes problems for some people. But I'm also absolutely totally convinced that uh, liberation theology is is a is the contextual perspective that we should have of who Jesus is. He says of himself, quoting Isaiah, I have come to set at liberty those who are captive to 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 preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, if he said it, if he quoted Isaiah mm-hmm. as, as, as saying, this is what I've come to do, if he, if he sits down and says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, then how can we just be dismissive of that right. and say that, that, that he didn't say what he said? I think this guy was Gutierrez or something. I think he was a... Gutierrez. Liar. Gutierrez. Yes. Okay. It's him. Yes. He... He really is his. He has some things in that book that evolved the rest of thinking. I already had those thoughts, but his way of exactly making you reconcile this to your faith, he had a way of doing it that that never it stuck with me. He gave me a certain thing that 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 helped that deepened my understanding of how this plays out with the sense of the whole world and what about if they didn't hear Jesus yet and what about this and that he had the different scriptures and he just it's him he is the this deliberation the theology of all of them and how it was put together that gave me the the rest of I guess my framework going forward yeah. after that well his his is is, is a more uh, uh, Latin form of, mm-hmm. of, of liberation theology. James Cone is the father of black liberation mm-hmm. theology. He recently passed about mm-hmm. about four months ago, four or five months ago. Uh, but, but but Cone, too. See, the other thing is black liberation seemed to always be so specifically black that for the, for the pieces of it that I read, mm-hmm. that I'm like, my God and Jesus, he's not specifically black. Like, right. they would make it specifically so black. From what I got with Gutierrez, that how you say his name? It was more the oppressed overall, even right. though it was some Spanish. It was his, you know, culture or whatever is in it. But the black stuff is like we're making it black. So it seemed like okay, we're doing a little extra. And 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 that's the fear that a lot of people have. But a reality of life mm-hmm. is that the poor and the marginalized, particularly in Western society, whether mm-hmm. that be Europe mm-hmm. or America, are overwhelmingly black and brown people. Mm-hmm. You know, so so you can't talk about the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, mm-hmm. and 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 remove them from the context of their culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, black folk, uh, by and large, even those who are considered to be successful, economically successful, uh, have achieved a certain degree of status in 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 their uh, chosen field or profession. By white standards, you're still in the middle. Nowhere else is is middle management considered to be as successful as it is in the African American community. Uh, uh, you know, we, we we don't celebrate anymore entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. What we celebrate is a guy who's making one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year working as a supervisor or a middle manager at somebody else's plant. Mm-hmm. And he's able to live in this neighborhood and he's able to send his kids to this school. And he's considered to be a guy who has made it. Uh-huh. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But things happen in life that will remind that middle manager yeah, that you still not that free. you <laughs> still are black. Mm-hmm. When Alton Sterling happened, I don't care where you worked, mm-hmm. you were you were reminded that you're still black. Mm-hmm. You couldn't live in this community and not feel the fact that you were still mm-hmm. black. Oh yes, <laughs> oh yes. So so huh? th- these are the things that 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 make liberation theology such a threat mm-hmm. to those who are more of a fundamentalist uh, European. Mm-hmm. Uh, mindset, and yet uh, they 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 don't have any problem with Bonhoeffer, mm-hmm. who who was in his own way a liberation 
theologian. They, 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 they will affirm Bonhoeffer because Bonhoeffer fought against Nazi Germany. And, and, and the great evil, as far as European theology is concerned, is Nazism. Why is it that you can look at Germany and make them the great Satan, the great enemy, mm-hmm. but you can't look at your own sin? Manifest destiny is a sin. Manifest destiny says that I am going to take from a an indigenous people a land that is theirs, and I have the right to do it because God says so. The last class with my college prep kids at my school, I briefly talked about that because we had a little bit we did a little manifest destiny in the Starbucks because it was the final class it was kind of like so we had to get a chair and get a chair and I was like look we had just talked about it in the class before we came over like look we about to do manifest destiny right now now we about to claim our territory but I was like yes yeah. so I was telling them about it because one of the girls had some book about um, becoming America something and it was like yeah they said God said to do it oh we'll just take 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 yes. spin because God said it so we're just gonna do it and they were like I just so it just yeah. Did you listen to the vice president yesterday? Huh? No, I did not. Talk about the fact that we are about to form <laughs> oh, no, we're about to form Somebody another branch of the military so that we can claim space. <laughs> America is about to claim outer space. Right. That is the most ridiculous, stupid <laughs> thing that I have ever heard. But it is manifest destiny run amok, carried to its extreme. Uh And pretty soon you're going to be hearing say, God wants us to claim space. Well, apparently while some of these kids were getting separated from their families, I saw a video of different um, of the 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 Trump administration quoting the Bible yeah. about discipline and justice and God has to send the sword out sometimes. And I was like, ooh, be careful. Make sure you're quoting him right when you use him to, for certain purposes. Yes. Let's be in, like, that's your decision to say he approved it because then you have to talk to him about that at a later date how you said he said you okay make sure that that's you know sometimes you do got to yield the sword uh, unsheath the sword but make sure that that's one of those times when these kids and families is getting pulled apart and you use God to bridge it so it's okay just be sweet be sure so he wants to spend eight billion dollars over the next five years to claim space yes God meanwhile Flint Michigan still doesn't have clean drinking water I'm amazed that that stuff continues. Puerto Rico is still ravaged by Hurricane Maria, and there's still sections of of, of that that province, mm-hmm. that that American-held province, mm-hmm. that have not had power since Hurricane Maria hit. See this this current administration. They won the election. Helped me complete King Solomon's conclusion because as soon as I watched that in New York, it was like, oh. I had the ability to finish the book. It was like, well, let's just get to it, finish this. But then my my most recently published one, Words from Heaven, How to Judge Christians, this administration just just inspired me to get this thing out so that the non-religious can see the Bible did not tell, is not, because we have a Christian party that's the least open to helping less fortunate while holding up the banner of Christianity. I can understand if some people don't feel like you should help others to a certain degree for different reasons of what they might do with the help, blah, blah, blah. But to simultaneously hold up the Christian banner and do certain things, that's where I can't, and I just don't like it. So they helped me. So once again, Trump has at least assisted me in, in one book and fully really assisted me with the last one. He really helped me get that one done. So, um, yeah. It is, you know, there's a word for it, hypocrisy. Uh, That's what that one's all about. The whole context is that you judge a tree by its fruit. Yeah. And that how, because how do you know if everyone's saying this, saying that, the fruit, and then the rest of the book was to show, what did Jesus say you're supposed to do? Oh, the love of your neighbor. Oh, you are supposed to watch out for the oppressed. Don't just do your new moon celebrations and convocations, but actually stand up for the yes. fatherless. And if you say, I did not know, you know, rescue those being led away to death. If you say, I did not know, will not he who no- hears the hearts understand? I'm paraphrasing, but 
Like they can't just pretend that that's too much. The it's the hypocrisy is so much, and it's leading people completely, making people just have to figure out stuff on their own because they yes. definitely don't want to go to this book while it's held by those who do whatever. And it's very hard to defend this book when people can bring up all these different things. Well, they justify slavery, but I'm trying to say if I have a book about a time machine, but I say it justifies slavery, that don't mean that the book did it just because it's in my hand. But it still makes the battle hard when those who wave it around don't do the compassion part. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate your perspective. And, and uh, uh, I, I feel that... Uh, you're on the right track of, of at least exploring. Uh, exploration involves asking the right questions and mm-hmm. then seeking honest answers to the questions that you ask. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me like that's what you're in the process of doing through these uh, writings and, and the productions that you plan on doing. So what is your future hope, your, 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 your immediate and then your long-range future? The immediate future, um, the next thing is looks like me and my kind of what's become a team out there and to try to get this magazine going for the city that I was in that it looks like I'm going to be back in with this different paperwork, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, so since I'm going to be back, well, we're just going to go ahead and try to get this magazine started. Um, The city is Chung Chun, so I'm thinking Mm -hmm. the title might be Chung Chun International. The goal is to show the international flavor. So when somebody has an article, we'll have the flag of their country because it's their perspective, whether it's on food or on travel or whatever. And you're getting these different amounts of flavor and putting elements of it also in Chinese. So we still respect that and also can draw both the foreigners, which is the non-Chinese and the Chinese to the magazine. And so we're just getting this started. So it's not we don't we're not on a certain level or anything. We just are going to do it because we're just going we're just going to make it happen. So they're kind of motivated off of what we just did. And so I'm like, well, y'all want to do this too? They're like, yes. And then Ambition, the magazine, writing for that, had me saying, well, why not do this in China when I get back? So I already got on, you know, started making the calls and we're starting to put it together. So we'll just see how it goes. But that's the most immediate thing. But mainly I'm trying to continue these projects. And then even with the teaching, I have some ways I want to extend what I'm doing there and do some different things with it. So continue to teach drama and English and also continue to push, pump out um, some different content, positive content and informative content and kind of ultimately there's a couple ultimate goals long term with certain stories that I want to tell that I know I can't tell those stories right now for different reasons from resources to the amount of time and thought I have to put into how I want to build some of these stories for certain specific messages so in the meantime all these other things are actually they're just pieces along the way to these certain specific stories that I want to tell at a later time when I when I have the ability to tell them the right way and make sure that they can capture people the right way by seeing how all these other projects do and don't influence people so I can land these the way I want to put this message. You can have a message, but then you don't know how somebody receives the message. Right. But eventually you start to know the difference between what the message is in your head and how what you project will be received. And then you find that balance to make sure it comes out how you want it to be received. What people will do with it is always, you know, you don't know. But sometimes at first, you don't know that when you put out a message like this, it read this way or that way. So I'm trying to navigate some of that. So by the time I put these longer term, bigger stories that's been on my heart to put out, I'll have an idea of how to actually translate it and have some resources to translate those things the right way to get the messages across. Does your future... All things come to an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point in the future, can you see yourself making Baton Rouge your home? Or do you think that you might want to live in a different part of the country or the world? I don't see making Baton Rouge my home per se. But what I see is a world and a future where the world keeps being smaller and movement as a good thing. So I feel like even from not making Baton Rouge my home per se, doesn't preclude the fact of I feel like at a certain point I'm supposed to probably try to make an impact in Baton Rouge um, especially there are certain people that I feel like um, they there's certain things building but it just so much takes time mm-hmm. so I feel like as far as some sort of impact for Baton Rouge whether I'm here or through something I may do later I see that I don't currently see the 
just me just coming stay in Baton Rouge. Not right now. I don't see it right now. But I know the future has its amazing level of uncertainties. Since Hurricane <laughs> Katrina, I've learned that part. I, that lesson is is strongly understood. So I know this because we talked before we started the podcast, but I, I just want to make sure that you say it for the record. Uh, when you were living here, you were raised in what church? Uh, Greater New Guy Baptist Church. Pastor by? Isaiah Webster. And got a great grounded uh, foundational uh, start absolutely there. absolutely dr. Webster's a very 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 good man and a very good friend of mine I want to thank you for taking the time to come and share with us oh, today. thank you so I much. appreciate it I have grown and we're going to have a conversation about this this publishing <laughs> thing okay uh, uh, not not right at this minute but very very soon okay because you've opened my eyes to some things that I didn't even know were available and possible uh, Mr. Carlos Malbert, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for viewing. We'll be back again next time.